All right. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to the Gospel of John. We're going to be, as Jeff said, in John 1, uh, beginning with verse 1. Uh, all, uh, pretty much all year long this year, we are going through the Gospel of John, uh, really looking at what God's Word has to say to us and kind of slowing down. Last year was just kind of this race, this, you know, just lots and lots of Scripture getting through it. This year, we're just kind of going... All right, we're going to just sit in God's Word. We're going to meditate on God's Word. We're going to reflect on God's Word and really just kind of go over uh, God's Word and hear what it has to say to us. So we're going uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse as we go through uh, the Gospel of John. Everybody there? All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who we can come to and uh, learn and grow and experience and wonder uh, and be challenged. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the Old Testament, as God's people would travel about, Every now and then they would set up their tents somewhere in the wilderness, and it was almost like a campsite, and they would have a worship service. Uh, and this was called, of course, the tabernacle. And they would offer sacrifices, and it was this idea of this is where we're going to meet God in the midst of our busy uh, daily uh, lives and rhythm, uh, the rhythms of life. So this went on and on uh, for years and years and years. Finally, God's people, the Israelites, arrived in the promised land. King Solomon uh, built the temple. And as he's uh, finishing up building the temple, he's getting ready to dedicate the temple. This place where uh, God's people, uh, much like the tabernacle, were going to encounter the living God. King Solomon asked this question. Will God really dwell on the earth, in that place, in that temple? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? It's a good question, isn't it? Will God really dwell on the earth? And this is the question over and over that John, the disciple of Jesus, was going to ask and really try and answer and really kind of uh, help us and uh, understand what does it mean for God to dwell, to God, for God to actually live with us, not just God off in the heavens, but will God really dwell on the earth? If you were to go to Israel today, you would see people still reflecting and wondering on this question. People standing at the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. And they put little pieces of paper, little prayers into the wall, trying to meet the very presence of God, trying to get close to God. This idea of God coming from heaven to earth, the theological term, of course, is the incarnation. And so we ask ourselves, did this really happen? Does it still really happen that God in heaven has come to earth? Well, most of us have celebrated Christmas for probably a few decades, right? 
It's this idea, and I think almost at some level, we've kind of become so familiar with this idea, this concept of God come to heaven, and, and we sing um, Silent Night and all the, the Christmas carols, and I think we said, would, most of us would say, well, yeah, God came to heaven. We just celebrated that last month a few weeks ago, remember? And if you were here last week, we talked about this idea of do you believe this? Do you really believe it? The God of heaven has come to earth. And I think we would say, yeah, we believe it. And the question we asked last week was, yeah, but do you really believe it? And it's this Greek word, this this, this understanding of pistuo. Because I think most of us, and even people who, you know, have some kind of other, you know, not a, a Christian faith, they would say, yeah, I believe that God maybe came to earth in the person of Jesus. They think that in their head. But I think oftentimes, do we really believe it in our hearts? Do we believe it with our hands? Do we believe it with our entire lives? I think that is really the crux of the question. Not just do we believe it, but do we really believe it? Not just when it's convenient for us, but do we center our lives around God come to the earth? And this is the question that John is really going to get at this morning. The, Matthew, uh, the gospel writer Matthew, he begins his uh, gospel story of Jesus going back to Abraham and this genealogy tracing the lineage all the way up to Jesus. Then we look at Luke. He goes all the way back to Adam, and he traces, again, this genealogy up to the person of Jesus. And you would think, well, Adam, he was the first guy, right? Can't get any further back in the story. You would think. But John says, actually, no. Let's back up the bus just a little bit more. John goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. And John begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word. And this idea of the Word, it's it's a peculiar word for you and me today. Why in the world would John talk about this idea, this person, refer to uh, Jesus as the Word? It seems so mystical. It seems so philosophical. Why does John do that? So what you need to understand is this idea, this concept of the Word. The Hebrew word for the Word is memra. The Greek word is logos. And if you've been following along, Chuck Swindoll talked a little bit about the Logos. And the reason why John uses this word, the word, is because God's people, the Israelites, they had a great reverence for God's name. God's name, as given to Moses, was Yahweh. But people would never say God's name because it was too holy, it was too perfect. And so God, God's people, they referred to God as Memra, the Word, when they were talking about God because it was too, 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 uh, too holy and too precious of her name. 
Or they would refer to God, not saying his name. We're not going to say Yahweh, the unpronounceable name. And they would refer to God as Adonai, the Lord, simply. They were so careful because they had such great reverence for God's name. And so they would refer to him as the Word. And so when John begins his gospel saying, in the beginning was the Word, all the Jewish people are like, yeah, we got it, John. We know you're talking about God. In the beginning was the Word. But this idea of the Word not only invited the the Hebrew people to sit up and pay attention, but it also invited the Greek people to sit up and pay attention, the Greek philosophers, people who really understood this idea, even if they didn't believe in, in God as we understand God. That there is a beginner, someone who started everything, someone who put everything in motion, the logos, if you will. The logos, of course, was the originator. And it's this idea that things don't just happen on their own, that someone, an originator, started them. It's kind of like if I were to blow that air that comes out, that air didn't just start somewhere. I started it. I was the originator. I was the logos of that air. Things don't just happen on their own. This is how the Greek uh, philosophers understood the logos. You know, it took science, uh, the real smart science people to pick up on this and kind of figure this out. Newton called this uh, his, the, the first law of physics. Newton called this The whole idea behind the logos or this idea and this law of physics was that things don't just happen on their own. Something has to initiate them. Those four balls are going to just sit there. This is the first law of physics. they, They don't just move on their own. Something has to initiate them. Something has to make them move. It's the idea that an object at rest stays at rest. Until it gets moved, until something initiates some kind of action to make it move. So the next one is simply this, at rest. An object uh, will not move unless it is unbalanced or a force acts upon it. A couple examples. Homework will not just get done on its own, right? So that's for the teenagers. If you've got homework this weekend... You, you got to do something with it. You got to open the books. You got to pay attention to it. You got to take some action with it. Or your room won't just get cleaned up on its own. You got to do something with it. This is Newton's law of physics. Things don't just happen. If something is at rest, it stays at rest until something happens. This is the idea of the logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, immediately as we read this, we, we want to ask ourselves, okay, which is it, John? Was the Word with God, or is the Word God? John would say, yes, it's both. Early on in the Gospel of John, John is already starting to flesh out this idea, this concept of the Trinity. And it's really hard for the people to understand, to begin to understand this idea of the Trinity. 
See, they lived in a polytheistic culture where there were gods everywhere. Gods were everywhere, but not for the Israelites, not for God's people. They had one God. It's called the Shema. And they said it over and over and over. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so John is telling us in John 1.1, 1, 1, God is one. But it's a little more complicated than that. Because Jesus is part of God's essence. And we could sit and talk all morning long about the Trinity and the understanding of the Trinity. There are different metaphors and images we could use to kind of help us to understand the Trinity a little bit. But the truth is, the Trinity is a very difficult concept for us to understand. And so I've got an image here that I want you to think about, the next image that I want you to think about as we're thinking about the Trinity. There it is. There's the ocean. That's the mind of God. And then there's a cup, a Dixie cup. That's your mind and my mind. And I think oftentimes we want to understand the mind of God and the God's workings. And we want to take the ocean and put it in that Dixie cup. And you're not smart enough for that. And I'm not smart enough for that. And this is the idea, the concept of the Trinity in terms of how big it is. But the point of John 1.1 1, 1 is that in the beginning, Jesus was there. Jesus was co-eternal and coexistent with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John's like, hey, here's the deal. If you don't get it that Jesus was there he, in the very beginning of creation, he was there, he was making stuff. And oftentimes I think when we think about Jesus making stuff, we think of a carpenter making tables and chairs and, and the things that he did in Nazareth. But what John is telling us is he was making stuff long before the tables and the chairs. He was the guy making the trees with God. He was there in the very beginning. You know what I like to do uh, with our confirmation students as they're finishing up their confirmation years and training is I, I sit down with them and we have a conversation and I say, hey, tell me about God. And they say, well, God's the creator. Okay, tell me about Jesus. Well, he's the guy that died on the cross. Tell me about the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not really sure about the Holy Spirit. And so we have a great conversation about the Holy Spirit. But here's what John, the disciple of Jesus, wants us to know. God the Father is the creator, and so is Jesus. He was there. And I think we get our heads around this idea that Jesus was co-eternal and co-existent with God in infinity past. It kind of changes everything for how we read the rest of the Gospel of John. And it's this idea of why it matters so much for you and for me that we are made in the image of God. And so the more we understand who God is, frankly, the more it helps us understand who we are, because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. 
which helps us to understand, getting back to the cup and the ocean, a little bit more about who God is. And it's also this great reminder that God made us to be in relationship with him. And so when we think of God, he's not just, you know, God in the heavens and Jesus on earth. But God and Jesus, John tells us, are one, both in heaven and on earth. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, Jesus, and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And I think this is a really profound idea and understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. Because Jesus is God. And this is actually going to change everything, I think, for how we view the world if we truly understand and embrace this idea that Jesus is God and that we are image bearers. See, and I think why this matters is because you were created to be in relationship with God. That's your purpose in life. See, oftentimes when we go to bed at night, we think to ourselves, is this all there is? Is this it? Some of us, we put our, 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 our purpose and, and our, uh, our, our image and, and our thoughts into our work. That's our identity, right? And we're like, oh, this is who I am. But then we're unfulfilled and we're like, yeah, my job's great for a while until it's not. Other people fall into the temptation of, of putting their identity in another person. Or, you know, even in family members. This is who I am. Until your kids disappoint you. Until your spouse disappoints you. And then at some point in time, you're going to hit that, and you probably hit it regularly. Is this it? Is this all my purposes in life? And then we see people trying to find their purpose and, and meaning in their identity in their leisure activities. You know, and their goal is to get somewhere warm and just kind of sit in a hammock. And, you know, that's, just, that's kind of the goal, right? You work, 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 work until you retire. And then you put your feet up and you rest. And, and then you get there and it's pretty good for a little bit, right? And you're like, is this it? Is this the purpose of life? Is just to, you know, work until I'm just retired and put my feet up? We all go through life. Whether it's our jobs, our relationship, or leisure, maybe even a hobby. It's good for a while. But then we're like, is this it? John says, no, that's, there's more. You were made to be in relationship with God. And until you have that relationship with God, you're going to go through life with this hole in, your, in, your, in yourself. You just be like, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? And when you experience God, when you experience Jesus in your life, that's when you get to that place of having what the Bible calls the peace that passes understanding. Ah, this is it. This is my purpose. This is my ultimate purpose and my identity 
is to be with Jesus and God and be in relationship. God created you and me to be in relationship. See, God didn't need us. God wasn't in heaven and Jesus and the Holy Spirit hanging out going, okay, we got all this space, we got all this time. Let's create people so they can worship us on Sunday and then disappoint us the rest of the week. That's, that's not why God created you. God created you just out of his love, just as an overflow, this abundance of love to be in relationship with God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And I love this because early on in the Gospel of John, it's like this, hey folks, as you're getting into the reading, into the life of Jesus, spoiler alert, I win. It's all going to be fine. The world is a dark place, but I'm sending the light, and the light is going to shine and make things all good. You can read to the book of Revelation, and you will see that God is going to make all things new. There was a man sent by, uh, from God whose name was John. And just to clarify, not John the writer. This, of course, was John the Baptist. And that name can be a little uh, misleading because we're like, oh, he was a Baptist. I'm a, you know, you know, maybe I should read Luke, Luke the Lutheran, you know, or Matthew the Methodist or something like that. And, of course, they didn't have denominations back then. It's really a descriptor. John was a baptizer. That's what he did, is he baptized people for the forgiveness of their sin. It's their way to acknowledge they had repented and turned to follow God. John came as a witness to testify concerning that light, meaning Jesus, so that through him all might believe. Who might believe? Who might believe? Who might believe? All might believe. See, sometimes people think, well, I've sinned a lot. I've sinned too much. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my baggage. You don't know the things I've thought, the actions I've done. And John says, so that all might believe. He himself was not the light, meaning John the Baptist. He only came as a witness to the light. John's purpose was to point to the person of Jesus as the light. And this, of course, is our role, our responsibility as well, to point to Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives life to everyone. Not just some people, everyone. This is why Jesus came into the world, so that everyone could experience him. Not just the good people, not just the pretty people, not just the smart people, but all people. And over and over as Jesus walked around and talked to people, he really encountered two categories of people, religious people self-righteous people, and sinners. 
And the sinners in Jesus' day, they knew that they were sinners. They knew that they were bad. They understood that they had done wrong. They knew that they were far from God. And so Jesus would invite them into a relationship, into repentance, into a new life through him. The sinners knew they were sinful. But then there's this whole other category, the the self-righteous people. In Jesus' day, uh, those were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They were the people who thought they were pretty good. They didn't need Jesus. They certainly didn't need this guy telling them what to do. But God has come for everybody, all of us, sinners and religious people. I have to tell you, um, I run into sinners uh, out in the world as well. And I, I, my, my encounter with sinful people is, is much the same as Jesus. They know they're sinners. And oftentimes when they learn that I'm a pastor, they kind of almost step back and they're like, oh, I don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my sin. You don't know my brokenness. You don't know all the horrible things I've done. Sinners understand their sin. But like Jesus, I also run into a lot of religious people. People who think because of their actions, because of their deeds, because they came to church on Sunday morning or tuned in online, or maybe they've read the Bible, they feel a little bit self-righteous. And we're going to see this over and over in the Gospel of John and, and, and the other Gospels as well. These are the people that really struggled to have a relationship with Jesus, to experience God come to earth. And I want to remind us early on in the Gospel of John is sometimes we need to be rescued. Sometimes we need to be saved from sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And other times we need to be saved from Sunday school and our own self-righteousness because that's what Jesus encountered. And I think we all can probably think of what I'll just say modern day Pharisees. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is a sad part of the story, I think. Jesus, being a Jewish guy, comes into the world. Guys, I'm here, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. Like, nah, we don't think so. They were so focused on their traditions. They were so focused on studying the Bible. They didn't recognize him. They rejected him, which I think is very interesting. And Jesus would go to these parties They'd be hanging out with these, these, these religious people, and they'd be talking about all sorts of things. I mean, they were, faith, they were within two feet of Jesus, the Messiah, God come to earth, and they rejected him. They could smell the breath of God, the ruach, and like, nah, we don't think so. I think that's just really sad. It makes me sad. That God's own people rejected him because they were too busy 
with their traditions and their religiosity. And again, we're church people, right? We ought to sit, lean in a little bit and pay attention. Because this is my temptation. And I would imagine this is temptation for a lot of you as well. So we can do all the things that we're supposed to be doing according to Scripture and miss the relationship with Jesus. Yet, to all who did, did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. All who received him. All who received him. He gave that right to become children of God. Notice, it doesn't say all are children of God. You ever heard that before? Oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. We're not all children of God. The Bible tells us, John tells us very clearly, we are all not children of God. Every person that walks on this planet is not a child of God, only those who have received him. Oh. Now, all of us, all people that walk on the earth, are made in the image of God, are image bearers. But not all people are children of God. John tells us very clearly, all those who believed, and he uses that pesky Greek word again, pistuo, not all who just kind of think that Jesus has come, that believe that Jesus walked on the earth, but that actually believe in their hearts and believe in their lives. And we all ought to be feeling really uncomfortable at this point in time. But this is what John tells us. And this idea that we don't do this, even us religious people, even we Jesus followers, but it is a gift. It comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, we call this grace. Over and over and over, we're going to run into this word believe. Remember I shared this with you guys last week? 98 times it comes up in the Gospel of John. It's for all those who believe in Jesus and the challenge that that is. So remember Solomon's temple? Remember Solomon's question, how I kind of started out the, the, the conversation earlier? Will God really dwell with his people? John says, let me tell you, let me explain this to you. The word, being Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when, he's, when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
I love this idea, this concept, that how we can really understand and see God is by looking at the person of Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's how Jeff opened our service this morning. That great reminder that the Word became flesh. And so the answer to Solomon's question is yes. Will God really dwell among the people? The answer, according to John, is yes, He will. There's a, 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 a theologian, a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson. He passed away a few years ago. And he wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message. And this is how he translates John 1.14. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. Eugene Peterson isn't worried about uh, or concerned about kind of all the poetry and the imagery. He says it straight up in the vernacular. This is what happened, folks. God became a human being in flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. And it's, it's John's way of saying, I saw it. It really happened. And let me just take off on this idea of moving into the neighborhood a little bit. Think about the neighborhood that you live in. God in flesh and blood, in the person of Jesus, he's three houses down. You watch the moving truck move, unload him. And then one day you saw him out there mowing the lawn, and you saw him sweating. And then you went over and talked to this new neighbor of yours, three houses down, and you helped remove a stump from his front yard. And as we were removing this stump from the front yard, he got a sliver in his finger. And you watched him pull that sliver out with a pocket knife and it bled a little bit and he wiped that blood on his pants. You witnessed that new neighbor moving in and the sweat and the blood. And then that new neighbor that moved in, you sat out on his back porch in chairs, lawn chairs, and you had a beer with them. Anybody had a beer, a beer with your neighbor? Watch the fireworks? Something like that? See, I think that's what John is talking about here. It's not just a poem. It's not just a really neat saying. It's not just some theological truth. It really happened. I saw him. I hung out with him. We shared a meal together. We did stuff together. God from the heavens came to the earth in flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. That's how we ought to understand this text. It really happened. Isn't that great? I love how John just invites us to step in and understand this miracle. To be clear, the greatest miracle that ever happened in the world was the resurrection. The God of heaven came to earth, died, and rose from the grave. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we'd all still be in our sins. Can we all agree that the resurrection is the greatest miracle ever? It's an amazing miracle. But I think the most remarkable miracle is the incarnation. Because when we really understand the incarnation, it changes everything. 
See, in a little bit, we're going to read about how Jesus is walking on water. And we might be like, wow, that's really neat. But if he's God, if he is really God walking on water, that's a piece of cake, right? That's no problem. We shouldn't go, wow, he's the one who made the water. We're going to read a miracle about when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a happy meal. And many people are like, wow, isn't that amazing? No. He's the guy who speaks things into creation. That's easy for Jesus. If we really believe that Jesus is God, these things are very, very easy for him. We're going to read a story about a dead guy, Lazarus, and Jesus is going to bring him back to life. People are like, wow, he did that. Isn't that neat? No. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is who I am. I'm in charge of all life and death. We ought to not be overly impressed with the raising of Lazarus. I think what we ought to really be in awe of is that Jesus Christ is God who has come to earth. And when we understand that, here and here, everything else is like, oh, that's what he does. So Jesus is. These things are all easy for him because he's God. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is God? I think it matters for many reasons, but one reason I want to just lift up to you this morning. I think it matters because Jesus understands, God understands what's going on in your life. You ever been betrayed? You ever been lied to? Jesus gets it. You ever had some friends say bad things about you? Jesus understands. God understands. Have you ever felt alone? Jesus hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One day, a group of people show up, and they're giving Jesus the business. And his family comes. This is in Mark 3. And his family, Jesus' own family, is like, he's crazy. Don't listen to him. Any of you ever been betrayed by your family? Anybody got family issues? So did Jesus. Which means God understands. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever struggle, whatever hardship, God understands. Because God walked on this earth in the person of Jesus. And he bled, and he died, and he rose for us. See, I think that's what we ought to be in awe of, is that God has come to earth not just to rescue you, not just to save you, but to fully empathize with you in whatever you're facing today. I think that's good news. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel writer, John, who offers us a perspective on who you are. God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Lord, we say those, these words over and over and over. But I don't think we fully get it, what it means. You have come to dwell. You have come to live among your people. 
And so, God, for the next 42 weeks, as we continue to unpack your gospel, just let that sit with us. You are with us. Not just theologically, not just philosophically, not just hopefully, but according to John, you came. Not just a human being, but the very presence of God has come to earth. So God, invite us week after week, day after day, to dwell in that knowledge, to live in that hope, to embrace the comfort that you get us, you understand us in all that we're facing today. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.